welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Hotel Bar Podcasts. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined by our two co-hosts, Dr. Lee Johnson. How are you doing, Lee? What's up, everybody? I'm doing good. And Charles Peterson. What's up, Charles? I'm cooling in the shade. (laughs) (laughs) So, as usual, I'm going to start with asking you what your drink orders are and your rants and raves. So, Lee, why don't we start with you? What's your drink order and rant and rave? All right. So, today I am going to have a rum and fresca. (laughs) Something that I tried. (laughs) Fresca, fresca, call me. Oh my God. My rant today is the U.S. Olympic Committee. And in particular, their decision to punish or restrict and in some cases sanction athletes that want to protest on the medal stand. They just recently changed the rule that said that athletes could protest on the field as long as they did it before the action starts. But they left in place the rule that athletes can't protest on the medal stand. A group of 100 or so Olympic athletes, mostly from the United States, China and Japan, have argued that the USOC's insistence that it be neutral is really complicity and I totally agree with them. Let them protest. My rave this week is the worst superheroes podcast. So this is somewhat related to our conversation today, but I stumbled across this podcast that's called the worst superheroes. And it's basically four guys who are riffing on this idea that in English we end a lot of sentences with man. And so they just take any time they say that and they make that into a superhero. So it's like, not tonight, man. Good good job, man. Like, where do you get your curries, man? And then then they have an episode in which all of them are writers. And they have an episode in which one of them writes the origin story, one of them writes an action scene, and then one of them writes, like, the nemesis. And it is great. I mean, they are fantastic writers. It's hilarious. They're obviously having a lot of fun. I highly recommend this, the worst superheroes podcast. Charles, what's your drink order and what are you ranting and raving about? I'm going to go with the Tito's and tonic, but with a splash of orange juice. I like to call it the the ratchet screwdriver. (laughs) And it gets the job done in a wild way. So that's what makes it ratchet. My rant is, you know, there's a great, I think, Adlai Stevenson line where he says, the great thing about this country is that anyone can become president and that's the chance you take. Right. (laughs) So I think about all the maniacs, the sociopaths and the lunatics who seem to have risen to high levels of power in the American government. And I'm looking at you, Jim Jordan, Ohio representative from the 4th Congressional District, which is my district. Oh, shit. Uh. Right. This slavering rat like maniac who's never heard of a suit with a shirt and tie. (laughs) His arch fascistic drives represent arguably one of the most progressive small towns in America. And he's just a bomb thrower. He's a chaos generator. And he's not the only one. 
So it's really frustrating and frightening that there's something so uncritical, loose and open about this faux democratic system that we have that these type of people can get so close to wielding incredible amounts of power. Yeah, some things keep me awake at night. Some things. <laughs> we should write a horror film called Dreams of Jim Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. My, and thank you for opening up this door, Lee. My rave is young athletes taking serious care of themselves. Right? Here, here. Word. Yeah, right? I'm thinking Word. about Simone Biles and her decision to step away from the Olympic competition because she was very worried about the effect that the pressure of her being positioned as the number one American athlete is having upon her, her mental health. And I have to give her credit for that level of courage and that honesty and that self-care, right? We have this whole narrative around athletes that you endure, you push past the pain, you allow for any amount of damage to affect you because of the desire to win and your competitive spirit. And you know what? I like the fact that she says, I'm not going to kill myself because ABC wants higher ratings. And I just, I have to love that. That self-love, that self-care, and the other athletes who've come around her in support. Yeah. Right? I have to give her credit for that. And she's like, and I'm still going to be the GOAT. Right. I'm always the GOAT. <laughs> right? I'm always yeah. the GOAT. So deal with it. I don't have to do little dog and pony shows for you to see that I'm the GOAT. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not I'm not dancing for you. So right, yeah. So right. my rave is for Simone Biles, Osaka, the tennis player, who made the same decision yeah. during the French Open. And I, and I have to give them credit for showing a real type of leadership and modeling for younger athletes. What about you, Rick? What are you ranting and raving? Well, first of all, what are you drinking? And what are you ranting and raving about this week? So I studied in Poland for a little while. And in Poland, like in many countries in Europe, they have black currants, which is a wonderful fruit, and it makes a delicious juice. And so I invented a drink, vodka and black currant juice that I call the Cape Codski. Um, oh, all right, all right. So that's what I'm drinking. My rant, so I'm going to stick with the Olympic theme. My rant is the fucking outfits of women's beach volleyball. I mean, come on, people. This is absolutely ridiculous. They're like, we found these two shreds of fabric on the floor. <laughs> right. <laughs> Could you the squeeze yourself into it? <laughs> the, the Onion had a headline pointing to the net and saying, this is what keeps them from having sex. <laughs> so I'm ranting about the women's beach volleyball uniforms or outfits. My rave is the Speedos that the men divers wear. Yes, I love that. Amazing. I love that. You could wear those all day long. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think I'm going to pull out a pair and go to the public pool. <laughs> just to see what the response will be. Freedom! That's my freedom. And all of us are going to have to take a break for our mental health. <laughs> you can't unsee that. You cannot unsee that now. And you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charles, God's gift to New York these days. You're in the hot seat this week. What are we talking about? I'm in the hot seat, and we are talking about superheroes. I guess in an ancillary way, we're talking about comic books and maybe comic superhero movies. But we're going to talk about superheroes because I am a lifelong comics fan. And though I read across various graphic genres... The superhero genre is the one that I returned to. It's the one that I was first introduced to as a seven or eight-year-old boy 
credit to Mrs. Mitchell, my, my third grade teacher, who encouraged us to read comic books in order to encourage us to become readers, which worked. But I want to talk about superheroes because there are a lot of criticisms about the effect and the role of the superhero movie on American film industry. And there's certainly a, a lot of questions about the role of that character in American life and consciousness. I find myself torn between two icons, the comic world of the last really 40 years. I'm torn between the ideas of Scottish writer Grant Morrison, who's a brilliant comic writer, most known for his graphic novel We Three. He's most known for his amazing five-year run on the vertical imprint the Invisibles, and just a host of other imaginative revisionings of traditional characters, Superman being one of them. So I'm torn between his position on comics and the superhero in particular that he articulates quite well in his memoir, Super Gods, that these popular figures are really moving into and replacing old world Iron Age gods, the, the, the Abrahamic gods that our construction of these beings is now um, moving into the, the consciousness and beginning to express these certain eternal qualities that human beings recognize themselves as having and it's pushing us beyond monotheism back into a certain sort of polytheistic perspective. And that this is a demonstration of the ways in which human beings are evolving, our consciousness is expanding, and that we're growing in terms of our global consciousness. The idea of evolution and growth, and the transformation of the human spirit and consciousness is actually a fairly regular theme within his works. On the other side of that spectrum is a noted North English writer, Alan Moore, who's, who's probably most known for writing Watchmen, and he's also known for writing V for Vendetta. And he too has been working in the comic industry for 40 years and does some really imaginative and interesting rethinking of traditional superheroes. And his position is that the superhero, which at this point are 70 to 80 year old characters who were created during the Depression era to entertain children and to be purchased and consumed by poor people, have now become this middle class sort of bourgeois affectation. And that he finds it very dangerous because he thinks that holding on to these childlike figures or the attempt to make more mature and adult these childlike figures is really diminishing and infantilizing society as a whole. He makes a point in an interview from maybe two years ago that for him it's no accident that in 2016 when Great Britain decides to engage in Brexit and the United States decides to, well, a certain population of people in the United States decide to vote in Donald Trump, that the six most popular movies of that year were all superhero movies. So he thinks mm. that the superhero figure undermines and disables the ability for people to engage in very real live issues, problems, challenges, and allows for them to engage in a hyper escapism. And this naive belief that there will be some super being at some point in history that will come and will save us all. And this tears me because I love both of these writers. I've gained a lot from their writings. I'm very provoked by the perspectives that they have on this particular figure in popular culture. And I was hoping we could take a few minutes today and talk about it. So, Charles, let me ask you, well, actually two questions. My first question is, what's your superhero? What's your name? What kind of powers do you have? Oh, I'm Sleepy Man. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the inability to get sleep is what powers me. <laughs> it drives my cranky power. So based on the cranky power, I can get amazing things done, but in a really bitter sort of way. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm quite powerful when I'm cranky. So there you that's, go. Like, that's, that's like a legit power. <laughs> cranky gets shit done. Isn't that just the Hulk? Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you yeah. Go. But my other question is, picking up from Moore's position. So I have to admit, I, as a child or an adult, I've never really... I don't have anything against them, but I've never really gotten into comic books. And my only relationship to superheroes is either through, what was that, the Justice Friends? Uh, It was a cartoon when I was a kid. Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, they're all in the Hall of Justice or the League of Justice. Yeah, the Justice League. The Justice League. Super Friends. The cartoon was called the Super Friends. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And then the other one is, you know, when I was a kid during the day, they would run reruns of the old black and white Superman TV show. So thinking about Superman and and that show for a moment, it always struck me that he was quintessentially Cold War. Like he was a kind of weapon of mass destruction. And then when I hear you talk uh, about Moore's position that on the same year that Brexit happens and Trump happens, the six greatest grossing movies are superhero movies. I'm wondering, is it possible that superheroes are just kind of empty in themselves and can be redeployed in multiple contexts? Oh, you mean, do they have a malleability that can be arranged, rethought? Well, sure, certainly, right? I think this gets closer to Morrison's idea that they do function as these pantheistic beings, these elementals that can refract and reflect. There's a hollowness about them, but it's not a bad hollowness. They're adaptable based upon the circumstances, the conditions, and the needs of the perceiver, or let's go there, the believer. The ways in which you will find, let's say, indigenous African deities who, once they are brought to the new world, take on different forms and different characteristics and different elements, right? It's still the same fundamental being or the same fundamental idea or concept. But now that concept has grown much more complex and is able to embrace very different features and and fixtures. So I think you're right about that. That may be one of the things that makes the superhero such a persistent figure within popular culture, that they can adjust, they can reflect, they can be whatever you want them to be, but they still have fundamental qualities that are recognizable across time and space. I have a question, and full disclosure, like Rick, I also have never really read comic books. I think I might have read a couple of graphic novels in my life. I read Funhouse and what's the one with the weird name? Persepolis. Yeah, Persepolis. I've read those two, but I didn't read comic books as a child. So my entire exposure to superheroes is through film and television and just like cultural tropes. But is the superhero an American invention? I mean, it's obviously an American export at this point, but was the superhero more or less invented in America? First, I want to say in terms of Persepolis, because I always like to give shout out to writers, that's written by Marjani Satrapi, and it's a brilliant work that examines her life growing up in contemporary Iran under the rule of the Ayatollah. So just a shout out to Satrapi. Yes, in a sense, Superman is seen as the foundation, the first figure that takes on these characteristics and adapts that name. 
But one of the things that Moore does, and he's got a great three-volume set called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And what he does mm. is he goes back and he looks at a lot of the turn-of-the-century Victorian Gothic figures, whether it be Alan Quartermain or Dr. Jekyll, and of course, attendant Mr. Hyde, or Nemo, the submarine commander. And he refits them into a quasi-superhero narrative arrangement where they're a team of figures who are working secret missions on the behalf of the British Secret Service MI6. So the spandex-bound, brightly colored, super muscular figure that we now call the superhero, yes, that starts with Superman. But the type of figure, the extraordinary human who has capacities far beyond those of ordinary human beings, who is able to engage in certain types of quests and adventures for the benefit of the whole, arguably that goes back to classic mythological figures. I mean, what else is Hercules and the Twelve Labors if they are not a superhero engaged in particular adventures? But I wonder if that's a retroactive interpretation. Like now that we have the archetype of the superhero, we read certain figures from the past as superheroes. But I suppose what I'm trying to get at is what are the characteristics of a superhero? Obviously, they have some kind of extraordinary supernatural power. They have some kind of a complicated psychological origin story. And they have this responsibility to save ordinary humans from whatever troubles that they have created for themselves. Is there anything else? Because that wouldn't surprise me that that sort of a figure is an American creation. Can I just say that notice in Lee's definition there, Batman is not a superhero because Batman has no supernatural power. And I'm sorry, you don't get to be a superhero just by accessorizing well. <laughs> no, that's his super rich. Right, that's his superpower to quote the Batman from the Zack Snyder movie. What's your superpower? I'm rich. And that's a distinctly American sensibility. Being rich makes you special. And you make some points, I would say, to attend to Rick's point about the supernatural abilities, we can say that one has access to or one has the capability to do extraordinary things. Whether one has a physical or natural ability or not, one has access to tools or weapons or sensibility that allows for it to happen. So, yes, this is a human being that can do things that other human beings can't do. Or this is a being that in some ways is superior to human beings. Because in the constellation of superheroes, many of them are quote-unquote aliens from other planets. Others are members of non-human species. So yeah, so we have that a person or a group that are capable of engaging in activities normal human beings, people like us, can't do. So, I mean, let's go back through your list. So we have that. What was yeah. your, your second point? Well, can I linger with that point just for a moment? Because, and, and maybe this takes us too far afield and we can return to it. But then I think the X-Men, and here again, I'm only going on movies, shows the problem with these kinds of figures, namely... Sure, they're great as long as they're helping the rest of us, but they could turn on us at any second and then we're fucked. <laughs> yeah, well, that was actually one of my other characteristics. So I said they have supernatural powers, they have a complicated psychological origin story, and they have this obligation to basically be saviors because we don't call beings with extraordinary powers and complicated back histories superheroes unless they're saving people. Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. And we also have to think about the rise of the anti-hero 
within comics in the early 80s. And once again, you have figures like Alan Moore who support that in their stories. I mean, the thing about The Watchmen is, The Watchmen is set in a hyper-realistic America ranging from the Cold War 50s up until the 1980s. You have historical figures who make appearances like Richard Nixon is president for like four terms. But really, the thrust of the story is to look at a group of superheroes over time, over 30 years, who are very human, very fragile, have their own inner turmoil of emotional and psychological complications. And what does it mean to have a figure like that have power and a certain influence over the affairs of a nation or a planet? The ongoing theme or motif within the comic is who watches the watcher, hence the term watchman. So what do you do with these figures who have placed themselves above or who have capabilities beyond the average functioning of society? And what does it mean for them to be, in many cases, just as damaged, just as problematic as regular humans? So so then let me go back to Lee's point, because in what you were just saying, Charles, it made me think that this is what Aristotle would call arite. That's often translated as virtue, but it's virtue plus excellence of all kinds. And so it seems like, as you put it, the 80s, the more standard superhero was someone who was a, a person of arite, of both a mastery of a certain kind of ability, but they also have virtue in the ethical sense, right? They will work on our behalf. They're always for good and never for evil. And and so then I think you're right that the analog here is not, as I think it was Morrison says, to the Greek gods, but more to the Greek heroes, who, you know, some of them have a semi-divine origin story, but none of them are divine as such. And so it seems like that's the precursor is the Greek heroes. But then in that case, I always wondered, didn't Greek children like secretly hate these heroes? Because like (laughs) your parents are like, why can't you be more like Hercules? Why can't you be? And you're like, fuck Achilles. I'm sick and tired of hearing all the time about Achilles. And and by the way, in the Iliad, Achilles turns out to be like a crying bitch. He is such a whiner. Such a whiner. They murdered his lover. Does anybody respond well when your lover gets murdered? He just met her. I'm, I'm talking Patroclus. Oh, but that's what I was like. I was like her. <laughs> oh, I, I thought I, I thought you were referring to the slave. Yeah, I think that you have a very good point in terms of it's the Greek heroes who serve this template, this arete, the sense of goodness. Because who are you committed to and who you're willing to act on behalf of is what makes you either a villain or makes you the hero. But maybe this is another difference between the Greek heroes and the contemporary superheroes, is that the contemporary superheroes use their powers or whatever to save the world as a kind of proxy for saving themselves. I mean, that's why we have these complicated backstories. As Charles said earlier, they're working out some inner turmoil and their savior job as superheroes is also a way of working out that inner turmoil. I don't think that we really see that in the Greek heroes, do we? I mean, I'm going to be honest. Like Greek literature is not my area of expertise. I'm sort of Greek hero adjacent in the way that I'm superhero adjacent. <laughs> but is that not true? I, I think I would say that what has happened is I think the darker elements are there within the Greek heroes. But 
in the way in which they're presented to contemporary audiences and children, you don't see the full scope of the life of Hercules. Think about the way in which he murdered so many beings or that he gets drunk because he's manipulated into killing his wife and his children. There's always some maiden being kidnapped and probably raped. So what you have is a glossing over of a particular type of martial and patriarchal culture in the translation and the diminishment or the smoothing out of these tales over the course of time. I think if you go back to the original myths, you'll find that these are much more complex figures. Now, having said that, to me, that's what makes them interesting. And, and not all superheroes within the contemporary canon have these complexities. I think they all undergo or have to endure some sort of tragedy. But not all of them are like Batman, where they have this inherent psychological flaw. If we're going to think about these figures as being idealized models for behavior, because that's how I took it as a child reading comics, even then I was impressed by this bold statement of moral and ethical values, these moral lessons and exemplars that one can get from these stories. Even if they are ethically complicated or morally diminished or there's some degree of psychological damage that they're trying to work through, part of what makes them a hero it's not just their ability to defeat the techno monster who's come to destroy Gotham City, but it's also their ability to overcome that conflict, to overcome that damaged part of themselves, and despite their turmoil, still see the way to do the right thing. <laughs> We couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip, keep it under two minutes, please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So, Charles, you sent us a couple of articles before this podcast recording to kind of catch us up. And one of them was this really great interview with Alan Moore that was published in Wired. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Alan Moore, besides the fact that he does seem like a pretty grumpy old man, <laughs> even, on the, even in black and white, he seems like a pretty grumpy old man. But he was complaining that these, I think he called them psychotic superheroes that defeat psychotic supervillains. Right. He was really tired of that. And that despite the fact that he was, I think, largely responsible, or at least he credits himself with making this turn towards darker, more grim and foreboding and psychologically complicated storytelling, that he was tired of that. And he said, look, we've just done this too much now. And so I guess I just want to ask you as a connoisseur of the genre, what's your thoughts about the evolution of not only comics, but superheroes and superhero stories over, let's say, the last 50 years? He's right. He should be credited for this particular turn. His Watchmen story is classic. He's not the only writer. I think Frank Miller can be given credit his turn on the Daredevil title for Marvel. Certainly The Dark Knight Returns 
which rejuvenated, I think, popular interest in Batman. I think it was necessary. I mean, he's right. And so is Grant Morrison that these are originally stories that were written back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s to entertain children and servicemen during World War II. And, and, and were such, right, up through the 50s. And then there was a crackdown because these are still adults who are writing stories and they have their own artistic and creative impulses. And, and they're beginning to shape the narratives in certain ways. But I think what American culture saw post-World War II was the maturation of the comic book is trying to follow the maturation of American youth. And I think this idolization of the youth of the 20s and 30s is overly romantic. If you're a child who's lived through the Depression and the Dust Bowl, you're probably not a child who has a whole lot of glitter dust in their eyes, <laughs> right? So I, I think the assumption about the maturity and consciousness of children is problematic. But we certainly see with the boomer generation, with their demands, the way they're pushing against the limits of social engagement, we see them in the context of the Vietnam War struggle, we see them in the context of the civil rights struggle, later we see them in the context of the women's rights struggle and the gay liberation struggle. So comic books are really just trying to keep up with their audience. It's still a capitalist endeavor. It's still a commodity on the marketplace. So if you look at Marvel Comics, which is noted for this deepening of the characterization, Stan Lee is like, look, the 15-year-old of 1963 is not the 15-year-old of 1943 or 1933 or 1923. So I'm hesitant to make it purely an issue of, of just marketability right? wow. in terms of the maturation. We have to accept that comic book writers and artists are artists and they have the same sort of creative drives in the expanse of curiosity and the desire to change and alter the forms in which they work as other artists do. But then do you think, Charles, that if it is the case that there has been in general, okay, obviously there are going to be outliers and so on, but if in general there's been a kind of darkening over of the, the superhero, let's say since the 80s, that, that characters themselves are a little bit darker, maybe because of the psychological complexity Lee was talking about earlier, maybe because they struggle with either knowing what's right and wrong or maybe mistaking the wrong for the right or something like that. At the same time, it seems to me like that is a kind of taking the veil off the superhero, like bringing them down to earth, as it were, so that now they're no longer just awesome, either because, as you said earlier, they come from a different planet or a different species or they got a spider bite or they, you know, <laughs> they were victims of a nuclear accident or so on. But now, once we start talking about, well, they're also working out the psychological complexity, then it seems like we're saying, oh, and therefore they're just like us. And so then is there, along with this darkening, a, a kind of slow removal of the super off of the superhero? No, I think that what you find, and I'll go back to this earlier point, I think what you'll find is, yes, the struggle against the more negative, self-destructive, darker elements of character and personality does make them more human, which makes it a much more engaging story. Because a goody-goody Superman, after a point, gets boring, especially if you're talking about a maturing audience. But I will return again to the ability to, despite the darkness, to always find the light. That's part of the superhero-ness of it. So for me, someone who's raised in the Baptist church and who has been immersed in seemingly a million Easter weekend services, 
The narrative of the cross is an amazing narrative, and Jesus of Nazareth is crucified for the sake of, of all peoples, and he redeems their sins. He descends into hell, comes back out. Right? There are two very, very dark sort of moments in that that I embrace that make me more interested in the figure of Jesus. The first is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's praying and he knows he's going to be taken to the cross. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't want to do this. So I'm interested in the Jesus that's wrestling with, who's struggling against, and who's very doubtful of the pure path and destiny, the superheroic nature of that person's position within this divine story. So that's interesting. But what's also interesting to me is once he dies on Calvary, if you believe this, and descends into hell, if you embrace that part of the narrative, technically there's no God. Technically Jesus is gone. Technically we have this huge void within the divine and metaphysical order. And there's no guarantee that Jesus in this narrative is going to win. But he merges on the third day, he rises, he makes himself known to Mary and her friends, so forth and so on. I'm interested in the personality that has to war through hell, despite their doubts, despite probably the ease of giving up. To me, that's heroic. So the characters that were created in the 80s and into the 90s, to excess, this sort of grittier idea of the superhero became excessive because imitation is the greatest form of capitalism. And it gets abused and it gets less interesting. And there is some pushback by the late 90s into the early 2000s. But to me, that's more of a compelling character because that's the type of character that the average human being can identify with because we all struggle with some darkness. We all struggle with some complication. We all struggle with some uncertainty and doubt. But to have a model that despite that struggle still achieves and does the right thing at the end of the day, that's a hell of a model to have. And that's a hell of an exemplar of what human beings should engage in. That's a really interesting interpretation. I think... I mean, I'm not entirely resolved about this, but I've wondered before whether or not the figure of the superhero is an afterthought. So go with me here. So the idea is that there's this world that is threatening and that is disordered and that poses real dangers to us that we can't meet. We can't meet it on its own terms. And so we invent this superhero to deal with the world as it is. But then other times it seems like the superhero comes first and then we invent the supervillains. We invent the problems that the superhero is going to save. It sounds to me like you're falling more in the second, that, that the interesting thing about the superhero is the character of the superhero and the drama surrounding the superhero is just the sort of mise-en-scene in which we tell the story sure. of the superhero's character. Is that a fair characterization, do you think? It's an interesting one, right? Because I would say, well, what, what is human life? I mean, it depends on how you think about and your relationship to the question of the human personality. Ultimately, is it just human beings in some sort of Newtonian process of reaction and counter-reaction? Or is there something like central to us as beings that we have to consider and nurture? And that is really the most important part of our humanity. Not necessarily the circumstances we're in, which has its influence on us. But who are we cultivating? Who are we being? Who are we developing? Who are we nurturing? What are we trying to do with the self in the midst of these circumstances? But it would also make this superhero type and superhero stories an incredibly narcissistic engagement for us. It's just a way of talking about ourselves. I mean, maybe all stories are that, you know. Yeah, I was, but, I was good, and, and not to be yeah. flippant, I was like... Well, well, I mean, I'm saying like as opposed to talking about the world. You know, that's a little bit of a ham-handed formulation. 
But I think about, for example, in classic science fiction, we invent these aliens or other beings or other powers or other planets or other worlds as a way of talking about our world and what's right and wrong with it or what could come to it we are worried about, what might be hidden in its dark corners or whatever. But at least on this interpretation, it seems like superhero stories are really just about talking about ourselves, not the world. The world is an aside. Yeah, I mean, sure. But, you know, know thyself. <laughs> you know, if you want to go back to Socrates. I mean, you're I mean, not in a flippant way, but what what story isn't about us? What story isn't about getting the reader to reflect upon themselves? A few weeks ago with a group of friends, I read the last story in, in Joyce's Dubliners. I read The Dead. A fascinating story and a brilliant piece of, of modernist literature. But at the same time, I'm thinking about what my relation and parallel identity is with the main character of Gabriel. I mean, I don't know that I think that all stories are that. I mean, yes, I think that we can find insights into human nature such that it is in all stories that involve humans. But I do think that some stories are about worlds and not necessarily the nature of the human being. Uh, Give me an example. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm curious to see your example. Uh, 1984. It's a story about a, a calm possible world. Sure, it is. Not necess- I mean, yes, it's got characters in it. Right. And yes, the characters are interesting. And yes, the way the characters react to that world seems to give us some insight into how human beings work. But it's really about the world that is built there and not primarily about the heroes and villains in that world. But I also think that it's also a story that asks implicitly, how would you behave in this world? Who would you be? What choices would you make as a subject or a citizen within this circumstance? I mean, I I think so, too. But I think those questions are questions about the world. Whereas I think the questions that Superman, when I watch Superman movies or Batman movies, you know, like how are my past traumas shaping who I am? You know, like they're incredibly narcissistic in that sense. But Lee, don't you think that 1984... I'm not 100% committed to this. <laughs> I'm, 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 literally, I'm literally like spitballing here. But it's <laughs> no, just, no, it's, it's compelling. It's, it's, it's occurring I, to me as we talk. Well, not, not to pick on the example, but uh, like I would say 1984 is not just about the world, but about the fact that who we are now can make that world. And so yeah. when you said compossible... With the emphasis on the possible side of that. Um, Going back to the point you made earlier, it it made me start thinking that, so Charles raised the big specter of Jesus, who, by the way, had another superpower, namely he had fantastic abs. Well, it's 30 years as a carpenter's apprentice. (laughs) He's, He's picking up timber, he's chopping wood, he's nailing, you know, hey. And a pretty solid posse, too. Yeah. Yeah. So some of them are a little shaky, but in general they're okay. <laughs> who doesn't have a, a, one? Who doesn't have one sketchy figure? Is it me, Charles? <laughs> you have said it. So when, when you started raising the darkness of the story of Gethsemane and also the descent into hell and the the instability there, that analogy starts making one think that the role of the superhero is salvific. And then to bring that in line with where Lee was going, there is something to me always a little bit odd if that superhero is not from our world. Hmm. And, and so then it seems as if the superhero is telling me, I don't have to worry about it. 
the superhero is going to take care of it. I don't have to worry about climate change because Superman can fly around the sun backwards and blow off the greenhouse gases and, you know, it'll all be fine. So there's a way in which the whole notion then of the, the superhero vis-a-vis -vis our actual world could always be one of a kind of quietism at least. Well, l let me put it this way. I often think we're just fucked. We just are. We've crossed the line in terms of climate change and we're fucked in all sorts of political ways and so on. So one way for me to feel better about that is to say, well, but, you know, maybe there will be a solution to this. Maybe there will be a savior. And then now we're back to Batman, strangely enough, because I do think these billionaire jerks who are flying <laughs> off to space do think they are superheroes. Yeah, yeah. Hey listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar, but since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter, at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is... At C.F. Peterson, that's at C underscore F. Peterson, and Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos, that's Rick Lee with two E's, and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR, and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. I would say this, that in terms of my point about the descent of Jesus into hell from the cross to the resurrection, there is no God. That's not my line and my thought. I would be amiss if I didn't say that that's something I've heard or picked up from Dr. Cornell West. So that's not me. That sounds much smarter than I am. That's Dr. Cornell West's idea. But I wanted to incorporate it into my thoughts about Jesus in Gethsemane. Here's the thing, right? And I think Lee made a good point about the hollowness of the superhero character. And I think what you've hit upon, Rick, is, is an example of that hollowness. Because if you are right, or if, if Morrison's idea about the ways in which these superhero characters, these archetypical characters that endure over time that we embrace and are familiar with, can really be the next stage uh, and model for human belief systems, sort of overturning the old Iron or Bronze Age gods, then we may run into the same problems which is the ways in which that quietism, that submissiveness, that expectation that this divine being is going to handle all our problems just repeats itself. So we remain on the same cycle. You see that with, I think, a lot of evangelical Christians where they have given up a certain type of agency, not the type of agency that allows for them to vote for Donald Trump, but certainly the type of agency that says we should work to create sustainable systems over and against climate change, or we should work to resolve issues of racial and economic and gender and sexual identity tension. We don't have that. Jesus will take care of it. So that's definitely a problematic. And that's definitely a possibility if we embrace these popular figures the way we've embraced, I guess, the popular figures of the past two, 3,000 years. 
But at the same time, I think there's something that Morrison is saying about the modeling of the possibility of the expansion of human character and personality that is possible within looking at and embracing these figures. Because we can talk about every single evangelical Christian who does the wrong thing with his quietism and his submission, Jesus will handle it. But then we can also say that we have incredible models of people who have seen the morals and the philosophy and the account of Jesus of Nazareth as an amazing example of what they can do to change the world in their lives. Cornell West being one of them. Well, you know, yeah, Cornell West definitely, but shit, I'm going to go with an easy one. Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. We can see him looking at the ideals of the spiritual system, understanding them in a certain way, and then trying to exemplify them and use those beliefs to enact change upon the world. So superheroes can play both parts. They can become a means by which people get stultified, infantilized, and diminished in terms of a sense of agency and capability. And at the same time, they can become incredible models of what's possible for human beings to achieve. So I want to follow up on that infantilization point. It does worry me a little bit that people get kind of caught up in the magic and the superpowers and in exactly the kind of way that Rick just described, that it, it can make someone quietist. Let me ask you, just yes or no, would you consider Harry Potter a superhero? Do you mean based upon his magical abilities, which are built into his world, and he's a part of a breed of human beings that are able to wield magic? Or do you mean his ability to endure these tragedies, to still pursue goodness and truth and justice? Now, if you're talking about Harry Potter's superhero-ness being exemplified in his moral behavior, yeah. Yeah, you can play him within that framework. You know, going back to the earlier Alan Moore use of gothic characters from the late 19th century, this form, this type of story of the exceptional being who engages in extraordinary acts to overcome overwhelming odds is extremely common to human consciousness. And comic books and superheroes are just another manifestation of that. So yes, to answer your question, one could call Harry Potter a superhero. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I think that <laughs> Harry Potter is a superhero. I mean, what distinguishes Harry Potter from all the other little magic kids in wherever they are is that he saves people, yeah. right? He has all these psychological problems and they right. drive him to save himself by saving everyone. Right. So he seems like very classically superhero in that sense. And I think I might have said this before, but the very first year I started teaching, which was in 2007, the freshman class that year were the same age as Harry Potter. So apparently as the books went on, I've never read Harry Potter books, but as the books go on, I guess he ages in real time. So they had grown up with Harry Potter. And so I'm talking about people who would probably be in their early 30s now. One of the things that I'm, I am getting somewhere with this. <laughs> One of the things that and, and I apologize if you are between the ages of 30 and 32 and I'm talking about you. But one of the things <laughs> that I noticed about this group of students who I taught in a freshman great book seminar where we're reading the Iliad and we're reading Gilgamesh and we're reading the Hebrew Bible is that everything got translated through Harry Potter, mm. right? right. Uh, so everything about everything got translated through Harry Potter. What I also noticed about them was that they embraced this sense of themselves as like, we believe in, in, I mean, whether or not they literally believe in, but like, we believe in magic, we believe in these other possible worlds. And to this day, I know some of these people, they're like 30 years old, and they go to Disney World or wherever the Harry Potter world is. And they like go on trips to that, not for their kids, for themselves. They have just fully embraced what seems to me a really 
infantilizing view of the world for somebody who's 30 years old. And there are some times when I want to say, grow up. These are children's stories. Of course, yes, there are children's stories that we can learn a lot from, but you don't read children's stories as an adult the same way that you read them as children. And I wonder if that isn't somewhat true also of people who continue to be so invested as grown adults in these superhero stories. Well, I mean, I, what are you? I'm talking, I'm asking you, when are you going to grow up, Charles? Yeah, you're a grown ass <laughs> man, Charles. Stop reading comics. <laughs> I mean, I hate it, but that literally is what I'm saying. And I get how terrible that sounds, but there is a part of me that does think that, that does think like, okay, yes, right. They're interesting stories, but grow up. Like you're a grown man. I just think of the name of the, the actor who plays James Kirk. And there's that great SNL (laughs) scene where he goes to a Star Trek convention and he just breaks as a you. Have you ever kissed a girl? And it's like this this guy with the Vulcan ears on and he's got like... (laughs) Yeah. At the end, he's screaming, you need to move out of your parents' basement. Right. Exactly. (laughs) But I mean, I should also say, like, I I feel like there's a place for fantasies, but... I'm not sure that this hasn't gone too far. In a way. I'm not going to judge that because I'm not going to judge what people need to get through this life, right? Oh, but you are. You are 100% going to judge what people need to get through life. People who need to believe that, I don't know, that black people are rewriting history or people who need to believe <laughs> that women don't have a right to make choices about their own bodies. Like we say, like, okay, you may need to believe that to get through your life, but that's not an okay way. No, to no, no. I'm not saying you can't As ju- an adult. I'm not saying you can't judge that, but what I'm wondering is, am I going to Comic-Con? Am I going to be at San Diego and I'm going to be my Wolverine star? No, that's that's not going to happen. The limit is I buy comics. I go see the movies with my boys. They enjoy them. Right. That's a bonding piece that I enjoy with them. It's something, a part of my growing up, I can share with them. We should I'm let not- the listener know that Charles is in a full Wolverine getup right now. <laughs> I was going to save that for the YouTube channel. And that's going to be my new profile pic. But thanks, Rick, for ruining that. <laughs> but, you know, you may not do that, Charles. No, no, no. But, but there, there, know, there are people are, who do. There are mo- millions and millions and millions of dollars spent every year. Sure. Sure. By adults, let me say. Yeah, and we, we, <laughs> and we can talk about the ways in which that's sort of instigated and provoked by these mechanisms of capitalist expansion without a doubt, right? This is very corporatized as well. And yeah, and if you're going to put certain types of religion, monotheistic beliefs on the same level as, right, these sort of Harry Potter sort of believers, you know, I don't think that's an accident. I think J.K. Rowling was intentionally creating a Christ-like figure. A hundred percent. In the figure. Yeah. So you can't separate the two. Now... Yeah, I think if your religion is telling you that a woman can't do what she wants with her body or that black people are subhuman or any of the reactionary shit that we see coming out of evangelical Christianity or any of the reactionary destructive things we see coming out of sort of certain interpretations of Islam, which is not all of Islam, but a, a particular reading of Islam. Yeah, that's deeply problematic. But the fundamental need to acknowledge that there may be larger possibilities and forces and worlds that inhabit or expand beyond our own mundane existence, that may just be human, that may just be human beings. So for you to tell people, stop going to whatever the hell the, the park is in Florida and going on the Harry Potter Hogwarts ride, Right, you might as well tell these Greek shepherds to stop creating the Thonic gods or the Olympian gods. There may be a part of us that needs to expand and hope that there's something beyond simply what's in front of us in terms of the material existence. In most cases throughout history, a pretty shitty material existence that most human beings have lived. 
And arguably, that connection to the fantastic or fantasy or the imaginary has actually led to a really incredible transformations of human life, really positive transformations of human life. I agree with you. I mean, people can believe whatever they want to believe as long as they keep doing the good work in the actual world that we live in. Exactly. So if you need to dress up in robes on date night with your wife, and I'll just leave it there to get you <laughs> between Friday night and, and, and Monday morning. But on Monday morning, you're like a public DA in Brooklyn doing the good work, you know. Yeah, then I, then I don't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> g- 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 God be with you. <laughs> And also with you. (laughs) I know this will come as a surprise to all of you regular listeners of Hotel Bar Sessions, but sometimes the HBS hosts don't actually say everything they meant to say during our episodes. Or, as happens more often... They realize after the episode is recorded that there's something they should have said that they didn't. For that reason, we have a whole section on our YouTube channel and our website dedicated to a video series we call Afterthoughts. Once every three episodes, Charles, Rick, and I record a video, so yes, you can see our actual faces, in which we more or less try to reviewer number two ourselves. You can check the Hotel Bar Sessions Afterthoughts on our YouTube channel. Just search for Hotel Bar Sessions on YouTube to find it. And be sure to subscribe when you do. Or you can also find a feed to our Afterthoughts under the Listen tab on our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com. Now, back to the conversation. That brings me back to something you said that didn't really register with me. And and now it's starting to sink in. Like you said that as a, a younger man or even a child, that you saw some superheroes as figures on whom you could model your own behavior. Moral stories of good and bad behavior, sort of models of ethical engagement. Right. But then, so I, I guess this is just a point I can't... I can't let go of. I'm like a dog with a bone on, on this point. And, and this ties, I think, a little bit in with Lee's point. Like Harry Potter, okay, maybe he models something like I should defeat evil, but I can't do it in the way he does. And I'm not sure I learned I should defeat evil from Harry Potter. And so then I'm wondering, like, what do I learn from Harry Potter? And what I learn is it would be really cool to have magic. To have a magic. <laughs> <laughs> and and what I what I learned from Aquaman, no, that's a bad example. I don't learn shit from Aquaman. No, um, no. But there are also problematic things that sure. you learn from Superman. You know, like, what did a lot of people learn from Superman? A pretty toxic masculinity. Sure, sure. And also from Aquaman, we learned that sea creatures can be our slaves. <laughs> I mean, and arguably what you can learn from superheroes is punching somebody in the face is the way to solve a problem. Yeah. Yes. Sock, bam, Yeah, pow. exactly. 
slice, snick, cut. Right, exactly. <laughs> that is, I'm, look, so I'm not saying this is an absolute position. I'm saying there's some very rich possibilities, but I'm also wrestling with the possibilities of infantilization. I'm wrestling with the poor modeling of human behavior and experience. I'm wrestling with, certainly if you talk about the images of women in comics in terms of the hypersexualization. So it's an imperfect sort of character, but I'm just curious about looking at the imperfections as well as the possibilities of those characters, which I think was helpful going with the Alan Moore and the Grant Morrison examples along as part of a spectrum of ways of thinking about this. So then to make sure I understand you correctly, and this is another phrase you've been using that also didn't quite sink in uh, until now is that it's not that I learned from Harry Potter, for example, or maybe that's a bad example, or, or, or Superman, that, you know, to have super strength or to be able to see through walls or whatever would be great. But rather, you kept talking about new possibilities for being a human, that then it's not the specific possibility, but a kind of hope for and working toward expansive capacities for humans to actually fix the messes we've made. You said it much better than I could. I mean, probably what makes me most sad and depresses me most about human beings is that deep in my heart, I feel that we can be better, that there's a capacity to be better. And we just don't. And that's what breaks my heart. Be best. Be best. Oh, God. I can't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Charles. So I feel like I have been a little hard on the superheroes. And I do want to say that I do love superhero movies and television. And I absolutely understand why people find it so fascinating. And I've learned a lot from you in this conversation. But I have a question I want to ask you that I've always wondered, which is, Why do people who love comic books hate comic movies? Like, why do people who love superheroes in comic books hate superheroes in film and television? I think there are two answers to that. I think the first is, and this is early on when the comic book character movie was rare, The technology hadn't caught up. The studio heads hadn't realized that this was a very rich area of marketing and and consumer capture. I think it was just like, this is crappy. It doesn't look good. It's not what I imagined in my mind. Or you have writers who are not actually understanding the character and why Spider-Man is a popular character for 50 years. Or Captain America endures in the American imagination. So I think that was one of the reasons why comic fans really early on did not like the films. I think that's changed, though. You know, I was having this conversation the other day, and it says a lot that whenever you have the premiere or the introduction of a new Marvel or DC film, the first place they break it is at the San Diego Comic-Con, right? It's the heart of the fanboy and fangirl universe. They've realized that the people who will drive the traffic, the people who will spread the good word, and, and this is certainly in the context of the internet, where now no one depends upon this particular critic to drive attention. Now it's all about this website or this blog or this thread. These people talk about it. You know, that's your best advertisement. And if you can get that block of hardcore fans to legitimize and give authority and credibility to that product, then that's what you have to do. So that's A. They've realized that the best way to sell these movies is to convince the people who are most invested in these movies and everyone else will follow. 
Secondly, I think that you have a generation of writers and directors and producers who actually take the characters as seriously as the fans do because they themselves mm-hmm. grew up as fans. Mm-hmm. Sam mm-hmm. Raimi grew up reading Spider-Man comic books. So when he brings in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man in the late 90s, early 2000s, this is someone who has real respect for the material and will bring their full skills as a filmmaker to bear versus just some hack, right? Some 60-year-old guy who read Captain America when he was 12, but now doesn't care. He just needs a paycheck. So the attention to the creative forces behind the film has increased. And I think a lot should be said about Christopher Nolan and his Batman Begins. That was an important Mm -hmm. intervention in terms of rethinking in a high-level artistic way this character and making the character, as he exists in the comics, a very operatic character. Batman has high drama and spectacle. So I think that's second. Thirdly, I think why you've seen that change is the intervention of Marvel Comics becoming Marvel Studio. Yeah, yeah. Right, And you have a porousness between the filmmaking wing of the Marvel Universe and the actual creative wing, the writers, the inkers, the artists, the editors. And now they're in direct conversation. So Marvel Studios can pull directly from the pool that understands the audience, that understands the characters and has the same level of investment in the success and the telling of these stories. And Marvel has made a billion dollars at least. (laughs) And so they're going to stick with that formula of making sure that there is a fluidity and a logic between the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the actual Marvel Comic Universe. I think now DC has that problem. Warner Brothers owns the DC cinematic characters, where DC remains, I, I don't know who owns DC, but it's still a separate company. And there's not that connection between the comics and the studio. And you can see it. There's no overarching vision. There's no meticulous construction of of a universe. There are no insights, jokes, references, none of that. These are just like these interesting standalone films that may or may not be successful and may or may not fill the needs of the comic book crowd, which ultimately will drive consumption and drive popular interest. So that's my theory on what's happened in terms of the relationship between comic book fans and comic book movies or superhero fans and superhero movies. So that's all super interesting I mean, I asked you, why do comic book fans not like comic book movies? And it seems like you've given an explanation why comic book fans do like comic book movies. Well, unfortunately, it looks like Frangelica is trying to give us last call again. Oh. Our super waitress. Oh, super Franny, come on. <laughs> oh, Franny. Oh, Franny. So, Rick, you are in the captain seat next time. Uh, what will we be talking about next time? I want to talk about the role of and working of specialization within academia. And I think it's going to be primarily, I think, humanistic disciplines in which there are what frequently are called subfields. So within philosophy, we might have feminist theory, race theory, medieval philosophy, ancient philosophy, Asian philosophies, queer theory, and so on. All of these are specializations that have developed very sophisticated methods. There are skills and tools that are required in order to pursue them. And yet, and this I think is why it's specific to the humanities, 
to expand our theoretical horizons to include these different approaches and, and frankly, voices that have been excluded for too long is equally important. And so I want to talk about how to work with both sides of those, recognizing our colleagues who work just I'm going to pull an example out in classical Chinese philosophy. They have methods and skills that I don't have. So I want to celebrate that, but also expand the voices we normally read and, and hear when we teach philosophy or Africana studies or women and gender studies and so on. That sounds like a great conversation. I'm very excited. Yeah, it does. I don't know if this is true in all of the humanities, but in philosophy, you know, when we go on the job market, we have to list our AOS and AOC, which stands for area of specialization and area of concentration. So maybe we'll title this episode AOS, not that AOC. (laughs) (laughs) And I was going to say, and this is an hour late with the bad joke, but... um... I was going to say your drink, Rick, the, the, the Cape Codsky, yeah. if you drink too many of them, it gives you Falmouth. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys, Frangelica, save me. <laughs> All right. Well, that, on that happy note. On that, on that note. So Frangelica really has turned the lights on now and wants us to leave. So we'll catch you next episode. Bye. 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 Oh, my God.